please subscribe and leave a review of Dorky wherever you get your podcasts. Also, you can support the pod if you'd like. You can use PayPal or buy me a coffee. There are links to both methods on Dorky's website and in the show notes of this episode. Thank you so much. Before the episode, let me tell you about an amazing online boutique that I just know you're going to love. Save Boutique is a great place for clothes, accessories, and shoes. One of the great things about Save is that it's size inclusive. Most items Save offers are available in sizes from small to 3X, and they're looking into ways to offer even more sizing options. They also drop new items every week, so there's always new things to choose from. They even offer three buy now, pay later options, shop pay, Klarna, and Afterpay. One last thing, they're offering a discount to Dorky listeners. Just enter the code Dorky, that's D-O-O-R-K-E-Y, all caps, no spaces, for a 10% discount. I even put a link to Safe Boutique in the description notes of this episode that will take you directly there and automatically apply the discount. So check out the amazing clothes, accessories, and shoes Safe Boutique has to offer. You'll be so glad you did. Hello, this is Dorky. I'm your host, April. This is a podcast about history. I'm going to be discussing events, people, and sometimes just random things from history that interest me. I am absolutely not a historian. I'm just a dork who spends a lot of time watching, reading, listening to anything I can get my hands on about history, and I want to talk about it. I think a lot can be learned from looking into the past. And I'd like to share what I've learned, and I hope you enjoy it. I'm super busy getting ready for 2023's Spooktacular that's coming up in October. So I thought I'd make this a lighter episode. So just sit back and relax while I spill some piping hot tea from 1924 Hollywood. Maybe even get yourself some tea, or whatever beverage you'd prefer, because this is a good one. On November 15, 1924, a group of people left San Pedro, California, on William Randolph Hearst's yacht, which was named the Oneida. William Randolph Hearst was a very rich oil heir from Texas. He moved to California wanting to get into the movie industry. He had some success in movies, and then went into publishing. He was also very into airplanes. In fact, there's a great movie about William Randolph Hearst called The Aviator. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. The movie The Aviator tells a lot of Hearst's story but it leaves out the story I'm about to tell. There's also a little movie that you might have heard of that's about William Randolph Hearst called Citizen Kane. There's even a recent movie about the writing of Citizen Kane called Make. 
directed by David Fincher, which is really good, and I also recommend. But, as good as it is, I would very much like David Fincher to get back to making Mindhunter. Please and thank you. David Fincher, I know you listen to this pod. I need you to know, David Fincher, that we need more Mindhunter from you. All of that is my very long-winded way of saying that William Randolph Hearst was a huge figure of his day and made such an impact that there are multiple movies about his life. There's even a movie about this story I'm about to tell you. It's called The Cat's Meow. So, as I was saying, a group of people went on this trip. I'm only going to name seven of them because really that's all that matters for this story. There was Hearst, his girlfriend at the time, Marion Davies, who was a silent film star. Film producer Thomas Ince. It was actually Thomas's birthday, which was the reason for the celebration that weekend. Thomas's girlfriend, star Margaret Livingston. The actor Charlie Chaplin. English writer Eleanor Glenn. And film critic slash gossip columnist Luella Parsons, who worked for one of Hearst's newspapers, the New York American. Before the end of that weekend, Thomas Ince was removed from the Oneida in San Diego to quote one of my sources, under the watchful eye of Daniel Carson Goodman, a Hearst employee. Ince was then taken to his home in Beverly Hills, where he died on November 19th from an apparent heart attack, which was listed as Thomas's official cause of death. Thomas's body was cremated on November 21st. The headline in the Los Angeles Times Morning Edition declared, Producer shot on Hearst yacht. But in the evening edition, the story had disappeared from the Los Angeles Times, only to reappear in Hearst-owned papers, which mentioned the, air quotes here, official cause of death of heart attack as the cause of Thomas Ince's death. People noticed this change of the story and immediately suspected something nefarious had happened on the yacht. It didn't help that press releases kept getting put out with different stories. One press release claimed Thomas died at Hearst's Northern California ranch, while another declared that Ince left the yacht in good health, but took ill on the train ride home and died in a local hospital. A third and final release said he passed away at home, surrounded by his wife and family. Curiously, none of the guests on the yacht that weekend ever stepped forward to clear up these discrepancies. The rumors of what happened that weekend not only persisted, but grew. By the end, the story had grown to Hearst was thought to have shot at Charlie Chaplin with a gun after catching him in a passionate embrace with Marion Davies, but had struck Ince instead. Charlie Chaplin's secretary, was rumored to have seen Ince being removed from the yacht on a stretcher with a bullet wound 
in his head. There were also some circumstantial things that added fuel to the fire, like the fact that Ince's body was cremated before it could be examined by authorities. He died on the 19th and was cremated on the 21st. And that the San Diego District Attorney called off his investigation only after questioning Goodman, who was Hearst's employee. That's the same guy who was said to have watched Ince be taken off the yacht. Just saying. I know I had previously mentioned actress Margaret Livingston in connection to Thomas Ince with this cruise, which, yes, but Thomas was actually also married. His wife, actress Eleanor Kershaw, would go on to build a large French chateau with apartments on Sunset Boulevard, reportedly paid for by Hearst Hush Money. Another fact that I personally find the most damning is that after this incident, Luella Parsons, the gossip columnist who was there on the yacht that weekend, would receive a lifetime contract as Hearst's chief Hollywood reporter. This contract is thought to be a possible reward for Luella keeping quiet about the weekend's events. Even more damning in my eyes, years later, Luella Parsons would claim that she was in New York during the weekend of the trip, a claim that has been disproved since then. In Hearst's defense, the confusion caused over Ince's death is said to have been caused by Hearst trying to keep his and Marion Davies' name out of the newspapers and to cover up the use of alcohol on the yacht, as this all happened during Prohibition, and alcohol was very illegal at the time. It's also said that the money for the Chateau Eleanor built didn't come from hush money from Hearst, but from money Eleanor got from the sale of Vince's movie studio about a year after Ince's death. Eleanor Kershaw had been a full partner in the studio. Hearst defenders also make the, in my opinion, very good point that if Hearst had been angry enough with Charlie Chaplin to try to kill him, it didn't make much sense that Hearst and Marion Davies maintained a friendship with him for decades after Ince's death. Marion Davies would eventually write an autobiography in 1975 called The Times We Had, Life with William Randolph Hearst. In her autobiography, she dismissed any notions of foul play aboard the yacht. She insisted that once Ince became ill, they put him ashore in San Diego so he could take the next train home. She also claimed that it wasn't until they got back to Hollywood that she and Hearst found out that Ince had died. But as long as we're being fair, I need to point out that Marion Davies' autobiography also said that there was never any alcohol or guns on board the yacht, despite evidence of the contrary. What I find most interesting about Marion Davies' autobiography is the fact that she chose to leave both Charlie Chaplin and Luella Parsons off of the list of guests who were on that yacht that weekend. 
I just don't believe Mary Davies. Inconsistencies like this are what's led to almost 100 years of rumors about the circumstances behind Ince's death. To be even more fair, I need to bring up the Orson Welles of it all. A lot of this story comes from Orson Welles, who claimed to have heard the air quotes real story from a Hearst relative. Orson Welles would later go on to co-write Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane paints an unflattering picture of William Randolph Hearst. I'll be honest. I don't know what part of this Oneida rumor Orson Welles played. But I feel comfortable saying that it appears Orson Welles had a bit of an axe to grind with William Randolph Hearst. The movie about this, The Cat's Meow, ends with guests leaving Ince's funeral, and we hear what became of them. Livingston went on to star in a number of successful films, and her film salary inexplicably went from $300 to $1,000 a film. Davies starred in more of Hearst's films before finally being allowed to feature in a comedy, Show People, in 1928, which was a success and included a couple of cameo appearances by Chaplin. She stayed by Hearst's side until his death in 1951. Chaplin got married in Mexico, and his film, The Gold Rush, was an overwhelming success. Parsons worked for Hearst for many years, and subsequently became one of the most successful writers in the history of American journalism. I feel like these facts at the end of the movie, laid out like this, make everything look very conspiratorial, so let's go through them one by one. 1. Marion Davies and Hearst stayed a couple, and she starred in a few of Hearst's movies. I mean, I think that would make sense regardless of what happened that weekend. To be honest, I think I would actually wonder what was going on if things didn't work out that way. 2. I mean, sorry, but big shrug at Charlie Chaplin getting married. I feel like I have to mention that the woman that they're talking about, the woman he married, was his 16-year-old co-star, which is very problematic. But as gross as that is, it had nothing to do with this particular story, so I'm moving on. 3. I do think it says something that Luella Parsons got that contract from Hearst. I mean, they could have possibly been working up to something like this before that fateful weekend. But I'm definitely giving them the side eye for this one. 4. Livingston making more money makes sense. I did the work and looked at IMDb. From what I saw there, her salary did increase. According to IMDb, in 1921, she was making $125 a week, which then increased to $300 a week. 
she started making $1,000 a week in 1926. But then I looked at Clara Bow's salary, just to compare the two. I chose Clara Bow because she was a super famous actress of that time. Here's what I found. In 1922, she was making $50 a week. In 1926, she was making $1,750 a week. In 1929, she was making $5,000 a week. In 1932, Clara Bow made $125,000 for the movie Call Her Savage. This all makes sense to me. This seems to sound right for an actress working in the studio system at that time. Then, getting paid more in that system as their popularity rose. I checked, and Livingston went from what would be $4,825 a week in today's money to what would be $16,000 a week in today's money. It also appears to me that the $125,000 Clara Bow got for the movie Call Her Savage was a fee for making the whole movie. Just so you know, I checked, and $125,000 in 1932 would be about $2,672,125 in today's money. Good for you, Clara. So, I think when you really look at the statements at the end of the movie, The Cat's Meow, they turn out to be not as damning as they initially appear. So, there you have it. I hate to say this, but unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to get a definitive answer as to what happened on the Oneida that weekend. But regardless, I had a lot of fun talking about this and serving this tea to you. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I have to admit that I think gossiping about things that happened almost 100 years ago is fun. I realize this episode is a bit short, but it's for a good cause. Because coming up next is the 2024 Spooktacular. Get ready for spooky history topics all throughout the month of October in celebration of Halloween. To quote the great Vincent Price, I'm going to give the people what they want. Sensation, horror, shock. I kid, I kid. The spooktacular won't be that serious, but it will be fun. Talk to you then. Here are some of the sources I used for this episode. New England Historical Society, IMDb, Sun Community News, and Wikipedia. So that's it. That's the episode. Thank you so much for listening. You can reach me at yourkeypod at gmail. Let me know what you think of the podcast. Let me know if I left something out or got something wrong or 
let me know if there's something in particular in history that you'd like me to talk about. There's a Facebook group called Dorky Podcast, and all the other social medias are at DorkyPod. Join them and be part of our growing community, but also to get extra tidbits about episode topics, like facts and pictures. There's also a link to donate to the podcast on the website and in the show notes if you'd like. Also, please rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast wherever you're hearing it. It helps the podcast grow, but more importantly, your feedback will help me make this a better podcast. Until we meet again, friends. Ha, 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 ha.